The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. We're kind of perking along through uh, the summer. We're into July. Uh, today we're going to be looking at 1 John 4, 1 to 6, and we'll look at the balance of chapter 4 next week. And then, of course, we have communion on the fourth Sunday. Uh, and then on the last Sunday of July, we have a pancake breakfast here in this room. And then we'll pick up um, our study in 1 John uh, the first Sunday in August. So just kind of because, you know, you're my nearest and dearest friends, just letting you know uh, what's coming up so you can plan accordingly. So um, let's just have a word of prayer together and then let's dive into our subject today. It's kind of a, a serious subject and actually and a really important subject for today. And, uh, um, and so we're going to kind of explore this a little bit and uh, hopefully it will be helpful to you. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day you've given us, a day to uh, just kind of put aside all our troubles for a few moments and to come and to worship you with God's people. And Father, we just pray that we would sense your presence in the uh, services, in this class, in our interactions with one another. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So just something to be reminded about as we continue to press through uh, John's letter. Um, one of the tremendous advantages we have 2,000 years since is, is this book. Um, John's audience did not have this book. It's important to keep in mind when you're reading um, the letters of John, when you're reading the pastoral epistles, when you're reading the epistles of Paul. Uh, that was this book in formation. So, so um, John didn't have the ability um, to encourage his flock by saying, well, I just want you to turn to Paul, or I just want you to look at the gospel. I just want you to... Um, it was really his firsthand personal testimony as somebody who walked with Jesus, who had heard his teaching, who had been captivated and transformed by it, and who was giving his flock at the end of the first century firsthand um, information based on his own personal contact with Jesus Christ himself. And so he was the last of sort of um, the apostles that walked with Jesus. And of course, he carries some weight. This wasn't somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard somebody. This is someone who heard from Jesus personally. He was there. He saw the miracles. He was there at the cross. He was there when the Holy Spirit was poured out. He was there as the church advanced across Judea, Samaria, and uh, Eurasia. Uh, John was there. And so you, you see in his letter, he's very much appealing to um, the teaching that has been passed down, and, and he being preeminent has one of the people passing it along. Okay? And so in the absence of being able to quote Bible verses, he gives his flock three tests to make sure that they know that they are walking with Jesus, that they're in the faith. And um, he kind of goes back from one to the other. So the three tests, just by way of reminder, are, of course, the moral test. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will obey God's commands. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey my commandments, okay? So um, he said, whatever people say, whatever they profess, if they are not obeying the commandments that have been handed down by Jesus, then their profession is suspect. Secondly, he said, the love test is really important. Do you love God and his children? Do all of 
your neighborhood know that you are a Christian by the love you are showing one for another? That's another key test. Um, uh, and then the final test, the doctrinal test, which we're going to revisit again this morning for the second time, is do you really believe that Jesus was the Son of God come to earth? Do you really uh, believe and ascribe and teach and attach your star to that fact? And so here was his flock being sort of pushed and prodded and cajoled and maybe a little intimidated by a group of people who were a part of the church who spoke Christianese, if I can put it that way, um, who, who used some of the same terminology, but basically didn't hold to all of the critical truths about who Jesus was. And as a result, because they were a near counterfeit, um, some of the people in his congregation were being rocked a little bit about what, what is true. Who do I believe? And so John writes to stabilize his flock, to make sure that in the midst of uh, this changing environment that they have something they can hold on to. And so he says, well, how do I know if I'm a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Don't listen to the false teachers. Here's the test. Do you obey Jesus' commands? Do you love God and his children? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, come down from heaven, the only atoning sacrifice for sin? Do you believe that? If those things are true, then you are walking in the truth and you are a child of the light. You can take that to the bank. And that's what John is trying to do. So not only is he trying to put a firm foundation under his flock, he's also trying to give them a grid to judge all the other stuff that is coming down. And friends, we live in a day and age where spiritually speaking, all kinds of stuff is coming down the pike. I see it on TV, I see it on cable, I see it in magazines, I see it at chapters bookstores on the self-help shelves. Uh, I see it in all kinds of Christian literature even, where people have all got an inside track on the truth, something that's really going to be revolutionary. And in a day such as the one we live, you have to be sharp. You have to be discerning. And that's the big word for today, because that's what John is talking about in these next six verses at the beginning of chapter four. He's talking about discernment. And so I want to explore that concept a little bit uh, this morning. Now, in its simplest form, uh, and this is, you can look on your handout now, discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, between right and wrong. Now, of course, the question you're going to get in our day is, well, whose truth are we talking about? But discernment, at its simplest terms, is the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. It's the process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. Um, somebody uh, once said some, you know, I thought maybe jaded uh, uh, university professor um, said, um, he said, um, about 10% uh, of the population actually think. And uh, he said another 10% think about thinking. He said the other 80% wouldn't be caught dead thinking. Uh, but one of the things that the Bible enjoins us to do as followers of Jesus Christ is to keep our wits about us, to keep our radar on. We are called to test the prophets, not to just swallow everything hook, line, and sinker. Essentially, we've been asked to use discernment in order to recognize what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong. Now, discernment is used in the Bible in a number of different ways. 
in its very narrowest, you know, pinpoint application, uh, Paul talks in Corinthians about the gift of discernment, which is a special ability given by the Holy Spirit in a moment of, uh, could be a prayer focus, could be um, a preaching event, could be a worship event. It's a special ability that God has given some people to be very keenly attuned to what is of God, what is of the devil, and what is of the world. And so people who are people of discernment are very clear thinking about what is going on in and around them. And so the Bible talks about the gift of discernment, which not everybody has, but some people have been especially equipped by God to be effective uh, in using discernment to understand what's going on in any given moment. And if you've ever, ever been in a meeting where there's been confusion or there's been some manifestations of the Spirit and it's not quite clear where this is all coming, you need people with the gift of discernment to kind of sort out what is true from what is false. If you move one step back from that pinpoint application, there's also um, the process of discernment in terms of understanding what teaching is true and what teaching is not. And that's where this book becomes incredibly important. Because in a sense, this is a bit of a discernment grid for us to kind of sort out what it is that God has said and to sort out his voice from all of the competing voices in our culture. And it's really going to be in connection with this that Paul or that John is going to be addressing his issues. But if you move back one step further, okay, so the pinpoint application of discernment is the gift of discernment given to some. The next level back is what I would call biblical discernment based on the truth that has been revealed in God's word. And then if you're a step back one more step, discernment is wisdom. It's really nothing but wisdom, the ability to see clearly and to make wise choices. And it could be generalism or it could be specific wisdom for a specific situation, okay? So when the Bible talks about discernment, in the broadest sense, it's wisdom for life. In the narrower sense, it's understanding what the Bible teaches and what the Bible doesn't teach. And in its pinpoint application, it's the gift of discernment, a special ability given by the Holy Spirit to some to be able to tell what is of God, what is the devil, and what is of the world. Discernment in our day and age, not so much for John's audience, but certainly for our audience, is synonymous with the ability to think biblically or to be, think Christianly about what is going on in the world around us. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, we often pray this, don't we? Lord, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Somehow or another, when we think about discernment, we're thinking about God's will. It's important. These things are connected. That's really what we're trying to discern. We're trying to discern, out. well, what is God's point of view about this? What does God have to say about this? It's kind of interesting that in the garden, what was it that was the temptation that was offered to Adam and Eve? How did Satan get a, uh, a crowbar into their faith? What was the one question that he asked? And it was a discernment question. Has God said? Okay. Has God said? That's a discernment question. Right in that moment, they had a decision to make. Has God said this or not? And it's the same decision that you and I face 
in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with our neighbor, has God said, is there a will of God to be known? Is there a standard of truth against which we can exercise discernment? Is there a biblical story that makes sense of all the other stories in the world? Uh, that's a fundamental faith position that we need to kind of sort out. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you obey Christ's commands, Christ had a very high regard for the scriptures. And so the scriptures are important for us in sorting out the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. So discernment is based on two pillars, and this is in your outline. The first one is the truth of God's word. John's crowd would have had the Old Testament but they wouldn't have had the New Testament in the form that we have it now. And so, but the truth of God's word still prevails. The apostolic witness um, that John provided uh, and has written down for our instruction. So on the one hand, we've got God's word. That is a standard of truth upon which we are now going to compare all the other things that we run into and, and, and lay all our decisions against. The second thing is the illumination of God's spirit. And this is really important. Because if the Bible is true, and I believe it is, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit within you, then you haven't really made that decision to cross from faith, uh, from um, unbelief to faith, from uh, death to life. The Bible says if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then the Holy Spirit lives within you. So think about this. As we try to navigate all of these competing messages that we're hearing all of the time, and it's only becoming more and more diverse, and in some sense it's more and more confusing, and people are saying, you know, is there a God? And if there is, has God said, how in the world do we kind of navigate through that? Well, we've got two incredibly important tools, this book and the indwelling Holy Spirit that makes the words of this book jump off the page into the business of life. And so those are the two pillars upon which discernment rests. I'm not taking questions quite yet. Um, uh, Paul in Romans says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so Paul is saying there is a standard of truth. There is God's will out there that we are trying to understand and apply to the everyday business of life. And it's discernment that we need in this day and age. Now, I hope that the professor is wrong. I hope the professor is wrong. I hope it's not true in the church that 10% of the congregation exercise discernment and that another 10% think about exercising discernment and the other 80% of the church wouldn't be caught dead discerning anything. I hope that's not the case, because if there's ever a day that we need to be vigilant, this is the day in which we live, okay? So, most of us don't want to be lumped in with what might be regarded, I, I say this, I don't know how I can say this charitably, maybe I shouldn't say it at all. Let me call it the lunatic fringe, okay? Kind of the the interesting people on the fringe of Christianity. We don't want to be led astray by false teachers, and I don't know about you, but I've been around the church long enough that false teachers have come up again in every decade. There seems to be a new wind of doctrine, a new thought, a new idea, and we're trying to sort out what it is. Uh, everything from kingdom now theology to prosperity gospel to is there really a hell to, I mean, you know, it just seems every decade presents its questions where people are trying to sort things out 
Um, but there's more to discernment than just not being fooled by false teaching. And I love this statement. True discernment means not only distinguishing the right from the wrong, it also means distinguishing the primary from the secondary, the essential from the indifferent, and the permanent from the transient. I should have really put that in your, on your sheet, but I didn't. Let me say it again. True discernment means not only distinguishing what is right from what is wrong, it also means distinguishing the primary from the secondary, the essential from the indifferent, and the permanent from the transient. It's the ability to think clearly. As a matter of fact, I love this next statement, and it just slips my mind who it's from, but discernment is learning to think God's thoughts after him. That's what goes in the blank. Discernment is learning how to think God's thoughts after him, both practically and spiritually. It means having a sense of how things look in God's eyes and seeing them in some measure laid bare as he sees them. Um, I was reading recently that in the next few years, your car is going to drive itself. Have you been reading that literature? I don't know if that kind of makes you excited or nervous. I don't know what it does. Um, but, but the notion is, you know, cars are going to drive themselves, which on one hand could be good, okay? Uh, wouldn't it be great to avoid fatalities that come from drunk drivers? Uh, wouldn't it be great to, uh, you know, uh, save people from getting into accidents with people like myself whose driving skills have deteriorated over the years and really needs a refresher course? No one's going to say amen to that. Obviously, you've never seen me driving. Um, so on the one hand, you know, there's all kinds of compelling arguments um, that, you know, you're just going to step in and just leave the driving to Siri, I don't know, some computer, somebody, somewhere is going to do all the work for you. Now, of course, there's some things about this that make me profoundly nervous. Because it's one thing to jump in a car. I like to have some control of where that car's taken me. Don't you? And... Uh, if, if, if road conditions change, I like to be in charge of responding to those changes in road conditions. And I want the ability to stop and get out whenever I want, okay? So, so this whole business of having cars that drive themselves, I can see the compelling reason for it. I'm just not sure I'm all excited about going there. I mean, maybe I'm a bit of a Luddite. I don't know, but I'm still living in the past. When it comes to matters of faith, there are people who would like to drive your car. There are people that would like to say, just kind of follow in with us and leave the thinking to us. Friends, we don't have that option as the people of God. We can't live our lives on cruise control. We have to make a decision to engage the truth of God's word and engage the circumstances of our lives, as challenging as that is sometimes, and make sure that you know, it is God's truth that is guiding us. Okay, so you can't kind of live the Christian life on autopilot. You have to be engaged. You have to be involved. And that's where, again, where um, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit become so important. So here is, I didn't put this down as a big idea in their sheet, but it is kind of a big idea, and that is, it is the responsibility of every Christian to be discerning. It's the responsibility 
of you and me and everybody around every one of these tables and everybody who's going to be attending the services today. If you know Jesus Christ is in the Lord, discernment isn't an optional extra. It's part of our original equipment. Okay? And so we're called, according to scriptures, to examine everything carefully, to hold fast to that which is good, and to abstain from every form of evil. Friends, that takes discernment. That takes the ability to know the difference and to make the right choices day in and day out. Uh, I love this little piece of uh, uh, instruction to Timothy from Paul. He says, do your best to present yourself as, to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Very vivid uh, picture there. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth and are saying that the resurrection has already happened. Okay? Not a big change. I mean, they are 90%, as far as we know, 90% doctrinally with everybody else in the church, except for this one thing. They're saying that, you know... Um, uh, the resurrection uh, that takes place at the end of time has already happened. Uh, they're upsetting the faith of some. That's the trouble with false teaching. It upsets the faith of some because it's, it's a near counterfeit. Okay? Uh, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You almost think that Paul and John had chatted with one another somewhere along the way. I'm sure that they had. So the key to living a faithful Christian life lies in the ability to exercise discernment in every area of one's life. Um, because we don't want to leave ourselves vulnerable to error. We don't want to start living inside of a false narrative or a false story. We want to make sure that we are living inside of God's story and that our story makes sense in terms of what he has to say. But I have to give you this warning. This area of discernment is an area where a lot of us sometimes trip up a little bit, especially when the situation is emotionally charged, especially when the situation requires some really courage on our part to kind of stand up for what we know is true, uh, especially when there are friends and family and people that we work with that are impacted by a particular uh, stand on truth. Um, we're running into a day and age when people are becoming more biblically illiterate. They don't have kind of built in this radar that the Word of God provides us for, that the Holy Spirit animates to help them sort out their decisions. Uh, one of the reasons why we push the Steps Journal, it's not because we want anybody to worship the Steps Journal. You understand that, okay? The Steps Journal is not God. You understand that, okay? Okay? But the idea is the Steps Journal is a way to help people keep engaging this word on a regular basis. So when stuff comes up in parenting, stuff comes up in marriage, stuff comes up at work, stuff comes up in the neighborhood, across the fence, stuff comes up in the next family gathering, that this is already alive in you. It's already informing you. It's already shaping your thinking and transforming you into the image of Christ. That's why we're trying to encourage people to use the Steps Journal, because we just want people to be engaged with the Word of God. We want this part of the Christian life to be active and uh, developing. And so Peter says that God has granted us everything that we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So this true knowledge, this is the standard against which we discern 
truth and error, right from wrong, what's going on in the world around us. And, um, and, and our pillars are the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And so discernment, really, at the end of the day, is the ability to think biblically about all areas of life, and it's, an, it's indispensable to faithfully following Jesus for the long haul. We don't want to be tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, okay? And so our, our, uh, the Bible enjoins you, I, all of us to test the spirits, to see what they're from God. Some of us have the gift of discernment, but all of us are called to be discerning. Some people have the gift of evangelism, but all of us are called to be evangelists, okay? So, um, so this business of keeping your head on straight, uh, of understanding the truth, especially in this culture where relativism uh, remains, and integrity is no longer faithfulness to a truth, but integrity now is being reduced to integrity to truth as you understand it. So you and I may have different standards of truth, but as long as you're, you're faithful to that, you're a person of integrity. I can be totally committed to a different truth, but as long as I'm faithful to that, I'm a man of integrity. And the scripture says, well, no, no, there is a truth. There is a truth that makes sense of all of other stories in our world. So before we jump right into John, let me just kind of stop there for a couple of moments and maybe process any question you have about the notion of discernment. Just make sure that we understand what we're talking about, because this is behind everything John is going to say next. What's a good time thing you're here then? Okay, so, well, number one, that isn't the passage we're talking about today. But seeing as you brought it up, um, Jesus uses exaggeration, hyperbole, to make a certain point. Get rid of sin in your life and be radical if you need to. Uh, he's not telling people to go out and cut off their hands. Everybody, hold up both hands. Just want to, okay? Just want to check out the spirit of truth and the spirit of error here, okay? Everybody's got two eyes for the most part. Mine are a little weaker than some. No, the reality is, you know, when Jesus was talking about that, he wanted to talk about a certain attitude towards sin. Sin is nothing to be trifled with. It needs to be dealt with seriously and radically on some occasion. And so basically, Jesus is saying, do what you have to do to kind of put whatever, is, whatever sin you are proponed to, to put it away from you. And so some people have... have move from one city to another to get themselves out of an arena of sin if it's in a relational basis. Some people have changed jobs in order to take themselves out of temptation's way. So in those cases, those are pretty radical decisions. But I think, John, that's what Jesus is getting at when he's talking about, um, um, you know, cutting off your hands and, you know, hating your parents and, you know, all these other things. It's, it's hyperbole used to make the point. This is how seriously God takes sin. And so, you know, if you find yourself going down that road, it's time to get on a new road, like now, 
uh, sooner rather than later. And we, by the way, we call that repentance when you turn around and go the other direction. Well, let's come to John. So John comes back to this doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And this is more than a doctrinal point. Do you understand that, friends? This isn't more than just uh, intellectual consent to some doctrinal book somewhere along the line. There's a whole chain of realities that hinges on this. Uh, in John's day, it was the humanity of Jesus that was being doubted, and that's what he's going to address here. In our day, it's the deity of Jesus that is being questioned, okay? So in that sense, our times have changed somewhat. Uh, in John's days, uh, people said, well, you know, if, if, if the physical is bad and the spiritual is good, then, you know, obviously we can't count on the humanity of Jesus. We have to count on the spirituality of Jesus. And he probably really wasn't in Jesus except in a passing way. I mean, the doctrine was there's just no way that Jesus' humanity really has anything to do with anything. Except as you read through the scriptures, you realize that unless Jesus Christ is a hum human being, he could not be our representative. If he could not be our representative, he couldn't die for our sin. If he couldn't die for our sin, then we're still in our sin, and our situation is hopeless. I mean, there's a lot that rides on whether or not Jesus was human or not, and that was what was being tested, and that's what John is addressing in this particular passage. In our day, same type of reasoning is going on, only people doubt that he is God. If Jesus is not God, then his commands really aren't that important. If Jesus is not God, then, you know, sins have really not been expiated. The resurrection really hasn't taken place. Um, if it's for me, tell him I'll call back. Okay? Okay. Tell her I'll call her back. So, so these two things hang together. He was fully God and fully human. You can't sacrifice either one. Now, there's a bit of a mystery involved. How can a person be fully God and fully human? That's something that theologues have been debating for years, trying to understand it. But it, the Bible affirms it. Uh, he had to be both. God had to rec uh, rec rescue us from the outside because there was nothing on the inside that was going to save us. And yet at the same time, it had to be somebody who could be our representative, our perfect substitute. It had to be. And so Jesus came fully God and fully man. So it's not just a matter of um, uh, theological opinion. Salvation itself is at stake. Whether or not you are saved is at stake. I mean, it's that important. And boy, I'll tell you, when it comes to that, don't we want to be thinking clearly? Don't we want to be thinking biblically? Don't we want to be thinking God's thoughts after him at that particular point? It's important for us to understand it. And it's important for us to understand it in our day and age because there's all kinds of people that are questioning it. Not so much his humanity, though some people will, will take you to task on that, but certainly his divinity. Today, he's a great teacher, but he wasn't the God. Except that, <laughs> in his teaching, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, a little bit of um, uh, double think going on there. So, um, what John is going to talk about in this passage is warning against what he calls the spirit of the Antichrist. And in this, he's not thinking about uh, final end time figures. He's talking about that spirit in every single culture that denies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so the spirit of the Antichrist has showed up again and again in human culture. It's going to be incalculated, according to the people who are big on eschatology, in this end-time figure. Um, but it's this spirit, it's just people who deny 
Jesus. And um, so I've kind of separated into what um, John teaches here into three sections, the task, the test, and the truth, okay? And so we're going to kind of process it through on that basis. So in verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't be fooled by the outward packaging. Don't swallow everything that comes down your way. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. You have the scriptures. You're actually qualified to make some decisions about what is truth and error. And when you can't sort it out on your own, you have the larger church community to kind of help speak into the issue. Okay. Um, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. Turn on your discernment. Be thinking biblically. For many false prophets have gone into the world. So bottom line is, there are false prophets everywhere. There always have been. And when I think about false prophets, and John is talking about them here, he's not necessarily talking about people who are obviously off the road, the atheists who oppose Christianity. He's not necessarily talking about them. He's talking about the people who have an air of Christian spirituality but aren't teaching the truth. That's kind of what he's dealing with here in Ephesus. And so he says, listen, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of books on the bookshelf at the bookstore. Um, you need to learn how to spit and chew. Now, that's not biblical, by the way. You might think it is. Um, but you need to learn how to spit and chew, which means that you need to learn how to recognize the truth and digest it and ignore everything else. That, um, and by the way, even if I were to write a book, I hope you're going to spit and chew when you read it. Okay? I'm encouraging you to do that. Yeah, you have to discern. So don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. For many false prophets are in the world. That's just the reality of the world in which we live. So you need to be, um, you need to be on top of your game. So John in this paragraph is addressing profession Christians who claim to have the spirit, but who speak and act in ways he knows are not of God. These people that have broken away. And this calls for discernment on behalf of God's people because there are other spirits out there, and here's what goes in the blank, that are not the Holy Spirit. There are spirits out there that are not the Holy Spirit. Christian faith is not, and here's what goes into the next blank, spiritual gullibility. Some people have suggested that Christianity, you know, are a bunch of people who will swallow anything that some hierarchical um, organization says that they should believe or should do. That's totally out of sync with biblical Christianity. Biblical Christians, devoted followers of Jesus, are thinking people. But they think with the mind of Christ. They think with the scriptures and the Holy Spirit informing them. Christian faith is not spiritual gullibility. This is especially important when the opposing forces seem attractive and compelling. The unseen spiritual influences that guide people's talks and actions can be accepted by observing their doctrine and conduct as well as the gift of discernment that helps us to kind of hear. I, have, you, has, have you ever been in a conversation where, you know, it sounds good about 95%, but there's just something that doesn't ring true? Have you ever been in a conversation like that? Uh, you're, you're listening, you're going, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Listen to that, okay? Um, now, it may be that you are falsely anxious about something. That's fine. But if your radar goes off, pay attention to it um, and, and check out, you know, um, what it is that's bothering you and take out the word of God and talk to a good mature Christian friend and see if you can sort out what it is that is the issue. 
False prophets are people who claim to speak for God, but actually are demonically influenced. They don't have God as their father. They have a different paternity, even though they may be speaking all the right words. Um, you know, at times like this, you know, there's, there's a temptation for people to say, well, listen, I've never been to Bible college, and I don't have a theological library like you, Pastor Mick. And, um, you know, I haven't been involved with, you know, Bible professors. Like, it's just little old me driving my bus or doing surgery or whatever it is that your occupation you do, raising my kids. Like, this is all way above me, you know. And I'm saying, don't buy that lie. You have the Word of God and you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And Jesus is for you. He wants you to live your life on the basis of the truth, not a lie. And so you have all the basic equipment. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of God. So, so give yourself some credit, or if you don't want to give yourself some credit, give the word of God and the Holy Spirit within you some credit that God is going to help you sort this out as you run into this in the everyday business of life. Okay, So... Um, so that's the task. The task is to keep our radar on and to be biblically discerning and to always be asking God, Lord, if your will is going to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, help me to be in touch with that will. Help me to resonate with that. Help me to be attuned to what it is that you want to do. Help me to call error when I see it. Uh, the Bible says, um, uh, you know, when you confront uh, the untruth to do it with a generous and a humble spirit, trusting that the Holy Spirit may give them a revelation of the truth that will lead to salvation. So, you know, it's not about being a crusader, putting on your Captain Error, um, you know, your Captain Error in uniform and taking on evil wherever you find it. Uh, trust me, you don't have to go looking for evil. It lies on every hand. But it's a matter of, seeing as we're already in the battle, being equipped to deal with it as, as it comes up. So here's the test. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. I, I, I don't know how it can be much clearer than what he says right there. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, people who deny Jesus, which you've heard was coming and now is abroad in the world. So John is fixed on this point. Anyone who has a true knowledge of God acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that the Son of God became a human being and walked among us. This is one of the primary ways, probably the primary way, that God has made himself known. He's made himself known in creation. He's made himself known through this word. But he's made himself known most powerfully in the person of Jesus Christ. Any person or spirit who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is misled and is misleading. It's important to keep that in mind. The antagonists in Ephesus taught that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he wasn't really human. And so as a result, they gave themselves away. Uh, the fact that they wouldn't accept that fact said where it was that they were coming from. That was a big clue. Anybody can talk about Jesus, and do. Um, uh, anybody can believe he lived on this earth. And the existence of Jesus on earth is pretty much a historical fact in our time, day and age. Nobody seriously disputes that anymore. But you can talk about Jesus and you can believe that he was here and walked on this earth and still not accept that he was God come in the flesh to pay the price for our sins and to set us free 
so that we could be restored to a relationship with God. You can talk Jesus, but not believe in Jesus. You can adhere uh, to some of the things Jesus taught without believing everything Jesus believed. And so this is where discernment becomes critically important. The fact that somebody is just saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that they're a follower or a true teacher. The fact that they can quote a lot of scripture by itself doesn't guarantee that they are actually speaking the truth, okay? Uh, and so you need to listen to the message and to the message that, that is being communicated. Does it line up with the truth of scripture? So um, unless they affirm, and here's what goes in the blank, unless they affirm the full humanity and deity of Jesus, then they are not really confessing Jesus. They're confessing a Jesus of their own making, not the Jesus of the scriptures, okay? And that is a very different spirit. The spirit of the Antichrist is the one that denies Jesus is the Christ. That goes in the next blank. I, sorry about this. I kind of went crazy on the blanks. They didn't mean to. I kind of got away on me. And does not, uh, does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Goes in the next blank. Okay. And so in John's day, this false teaching essentially showed up in the form that, um, that denied that the atonement uh, was based on Jesus' finished work on the cross. They basically said... Sin is really not an issue. It's connected to the material life. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the spirit. You can live however you want. You can be involved in whatever you want. It doesn't matter because, you know, the physical doesn't count. And so there was an antinomianism. They were not obeying Christ's commands. They were in their own spiritual zone. So in John's day, that's how this denial of Christ surfaced. The notion that, you know, the cross really wasn't necessary for our atonement. Well, that's a total denial of what the Bible teaches, but Paul labored to try to make sure that everybody understood in all the churches that he started. And then finally, the truth, verses 4 to 6. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, the other spirit. They are from the world, the false teachers, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Wherever it is not from God does not listen to us, and by this we know the spirit of the truth and spirit of error. Okay, so let's just think this through for a moment in these last few moments. You have a spirit, a Holy Spirit, alive in you that is more than capable of sorting out and giving you the power to resist godly, in, ungodly influence in all of its different forms, okay? The Holy Spirit is there to help you. That's why the Holy Spirit was given. False teachers do not have the Holy Spirit living within them because in order to do that, they have to be living in fellowship with Jesus Christ, who they're already denying, okay? So they really haven't crossed, they've, they've adopted spirituality, but they have not adopted a relationship with Jesus. They haven't entered into a relationship with Jesus. And so he says, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God speak the same language and everybody understands them. And people who speak the language of the world speak the same language and everybody understands them. Okay? And so what he is saying here is... Um, if you're from the world and you speak the world's language, you get a certain amount of cachet in the world. You have a certain amount of credibility. People listen to you. But if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then you have a different spirit. And so you communicate in language that other people who are in the spirit 
um, understand and readily connect with. I realize this every time I go from city to city and show up in churches with complete strangers, and all of a sudden we're brothers and sisters by the time I leave the service. That's an amazing thing. It's something the Holy Spirit does. But notice what else he is saying here. It's really hard for people who do not have the Holy Spirit of God to get the language of the people who do. Okay? They just don't get it. They don't understand it. They're opposed to it. They push against it. They just don't understand it. Because they're out of fellowship with God, then uh, they have a hard time understanding what Christianity is all about, and sometimes they get actively aggressive towards it. In John's day, the false teachers were gaining a hearing because they accommodated their teaching to what the surrounding culture wanted to hear. They basically um, adopted the cultural story and married the Christian story to it. But in John's day, what he saw happening is that the culture story was prevailing. And so the Christian story was taking increasingly second place. And that's always the danger of compromise in every culture. That's why Paul says at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. Okay? We don't want to be conformed. We want to be... The, the, the pressure to conform never goes away. And so we have to be actually somewhat aggressive, if you want to put it that way, or at least intentional about making sure we're giving God's truth room in our lives so that we will be transformed from the inside out. People who truly know, or I mean, tr people who truly know God hear what God has to say. That goes in the next blank. And uh, they understand it through his word and through his witnesses. People who truly know God get it. When they read the scriptures. The scriptures come alive to them. They're speaking the language of the spirit, as it were. Um, but people who don't have the spirit are more turned to the spirit of the world. And so, of course, they have cachet. The world listens to them. They're speaking its language. So it's not the best metaphor, but I kind of like that metaphor. Uh, people without the Spirit of God speak a certain language, and people who have the Spirit of God speak another language. And there's always some confusion in the translation. Um, and that's part of the tension that you and I uh, experience day to day. People who are not true believers resist, that's the word that goes in the blank, resist sound doctrine. It doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't fit their culturally shaped worldview and values. And so if you are not walking in step with them, you're going to get some pushback. You're going to get some sanction. You're going to get some resistance because you're not playing the game by their rules. You're not speaking their language. Okay. Now, we are called to be conversant in the language of our culture. We're not called to be ignorant. We're not called to run for the hills like let's all move to Iceland. Um, uh, you know, and kind of hole up there in Iceland until God comes again. No. Jesus said he intentionally has put us in the world. Not to be of the world, but our calling and our mission is in the world. And the number one piece of equipment, or one of the number one pieces of equipment he gives for us to manage our life in the world is this discernment that comes from adhering to God's truth and, and being open to his spirit. God's truth helps us to be learners, God's Spirit teaches us to be listeners. And so that's our challenge as followers of Jesus. We want to be learners and listeners. We want to understand God's will. We want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives and the lives of the people we know. So, um, so John comes back to his doctrinal test. If you don't believe in Jesus, then whatever else you have to say about him, however nice and pretty it is, you're actually selling the farm. 
it's really important to accept the apostolic witness that Jesus is who he said he was, son of God and son of man, both fully human and fully divine. Our salvation rests on it. We can't compromise that. We can't give that away.